Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast from the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and we have arrived at our midweek contemplation of insights from Yi Jing, the field guide to synchronicity science. And speaking of synchronicity, I'd like to share some strong resonance between last week's Yi Jing insights and one listener's experience. Last week we had a main hexagram and a relating hexagram. Anytime we have moving lines in our figure, in our hexagram, then we'll have a relating figure or hexagram. The relating hexagram helps us to see how we relate to the main figure, the main situation as a whole. The function of this relational figure or relating figure therefore depends on each individual, and it depends on the specifics of the circumstance. That's what makes Yi Jing so responsive. There are all these ways in which it very specifically responds to the context and to our own life. For some of us, a a particular reading will have a relating figure that might give us a warning or some kind of insight about potential dangers or problems. For others of us, or in other situations, the relating figure might have to do with positive potentials, or maybe a possible next step that we could take if we handle things well. It could be anything that clarifies our relationship to the present situation as expressed by the main figure. Last week, our relating figure was hexagram 56, which usually gets translated as traveling or sojourning. And we spoke about how it might relate to our main figure, which had to do with flying low and getting grounded. Really had to do with bringing ourselves a little bit more inward and noticing that we might be experiencing an inner boundedness. Things inside us that are stuck or bracing or tense and that might be provoked by outward activity. So in the ideal case, the figure represents inner stillness, but in our case it could res- uh, represent inner stuckness or inner boundedness. And then the relating figure of traveling taught us the lesson that travel bestows spiritual benefits only when we understand it as inner stillness and outward illumination. And once we understand that, deeply enough, we don't have to travel. We certainly don't have to leave our local landscapes in order to get the spiritual benefits that we could get from traveling. It's not to say that we should never travel, but that we should be really careful, especially now. And if we don't understand these things, then our inner boundedness makes us want to escape and get away from the busyness outside of us. And travel becomes incorporated into the spiritual materialism of our culture and our own life, our own ego. When we go someplace far enough away from our habitual field of action, then we're going to experience a relative calm. That's just going to happen. It's no different than if you're running on a treadmill and you get off it. For a second, it's going to feel a lot easier, isn't it? It doesn't mean that the rest of your life isn't still, you're still in a gym, <laughs> you're still, you haven't really changed much, but you've made this relative change. It's not true inner stillness. 
we feel better because we stop provoking some of our habitual inner boundedness. And so it matters a great deal that in Yijing, travel gets associated with inner stillness and outward illumination. And we really do need to reflect on the fact that our usual experience of travel doesn't really raise the bar for us in terms of inner stillness. We're not thinking, oh, I'm going to travel, so that really means I have to meditate, maintain my inner stillness, not in some forced way, but that we really begin to pay attention and be in touch with the stillness that is part of the nature of our own mind. We fantasize that travel illuminates things, but a lot of that is fantasy. You know, we, we could be entertaining the mind and we could be illuminating the mind, but not illuminating our nature. Now, one listener said that they had, they writ, wrote about having strayed from their spiritual practice. And they wrote that they were in a lot of physical pain since the, the springtime. And all the pain that they were experiencing evoked fear and worry and anxiety. And then, just very recently, they went this, uh, they had a period of travel that occurred, sort of overlapped with this reading. They had gone and then returned, and they went to a different part of the country where they live. And it's a part of their country they have visited before, and they love this place. They love the beauty there. They spent two weeks, and during that time, they experienced no pain at all. That's what they said. They felt peaceful and happy as if they were floating and balanced all the time. That's how they described it, like a feeling of happiness, peace, and floating and balanced. And then they returned home, and of course all the pain and mental anguish returned, and they felt shocked. And now they wrote to me that they want to rededicate themselves to their spiritual practice and have a real daily practice again. They also reported that they stayed away from the news during their vacation, and they thought that had something to do with feeling better as well. And so the, this being gone and returning overlapped the Yijing reading and offers a really rich synchronicity. It's a marvelous spiritual lesson for all of us. Now, I can't pretend to know this person's full experience, their own personal experience, even though it's someone I know I, and someone I love and admire I still don't know them well enough to say much about their experience. And i it's not a client or anything like that. So I would never have harsh words of criticism for this person anyway. And I only have positive things to say about them. But in reflecting just on this kind of archetypal experience, it's not a fully archetypal experience, but it is has become one in a way. It's almost like a new archetype of being busy and going on vacation, I think there's a lot that we could learn, and we can only reflect on general trends in the dominant culture. They might not apply to any particular person listening right now, but most likely all of us can sense at least some truth relevant for our own lives. Now, one lesson has to do with uh, the term I mentioned just a moment ago, spiritual materialism. 
Spiritual materialism means that every idea, every notion, every practice, every religion or philosophy, every political or economic ideal, doesn't matter what it is, it can be co-opted. And the ideal might be to liberate us. You know, we think capitalism is about freedom, for instance, or we might believe in justice, or we might believe in peace and wisdom and love and all this. But whatever our practices are related to that and whatever the idea itself is, those ideas and practices can perpetuate and even deepen bondage, oppression, and suffering rather than liberating us. So, you know, Jesus didn't teach people, it's not in the Gospels that you should have crusades, but then people took Christianity and made it part of the justification for war. And we still use this, like the other people are godless and they're awful, and we have to make the world safe for democracy, so democracy is used for violence and aggression, and so is Christianity and other things. And in our spiritual life, even meditating can become like a, a spiritual materialism practice because we can start to get to the place where we feel really balanced and happy and peaceful and floating on our meditation cushion or our yoga mat. I think there was a little Freudian step. I sort of said medication. It's our medication cushion, isn't it? And we feel really good. We feel kind of blissed out or we feel very empowered. But really the ego is what gets empowered as it tries to figure out how to co-opt this new thing. Oh, you're going to sit on this thing every day. Well, let me figure out how to make that about me and not about dissolving anything that I like. And travel in the dominant culture is spiritual materialism on steroids. This is so evident. We can cross huge dif distances in great comfort and in relatively short periods of time. No spiritual pilgrims of the past had it like we do. And spiritual pilgrims of the past, they went for, on these difficult journeys, uncomfortable often, arduous, and they went to sacred places, not just, oh, it's fun, it's beautiful. And even we say, oh, it's, but it's really beautiful there. But they were going to places that were not just pretty, but genuinely sacred. You know, there's a difference between the beauty, say, of the Great Plains and the Black Hills specifically. And every place is like that, you know. Every indigenous people live in the midst of tremendous beauty, but then they also have their sacred places. And spiritual pilgrims go to those places, and they often seek teachings. They might go to a place where there is a teacher near the, the sacred place, or maybe the teacher's monastery, for instance, is a sacred place, and they seek teachings there, and they seek teachings all the way on the journey. The whole thing is about really looking and getting over all of our delusions. But today, travel is just an escape from all our provocations. And the ego feels great, the body feels great, because we put down a lot of burden and we get free from the kind of evil triumvirate of Captain Clock and Colonel Calendar and Commander Capital. Usually we don't get enough rest in our daily life. We can be tired all the time. We worry about all kinds of things. We're endlessly busy and distracted. And we even try to use distraction to unplug. But distraction is just part of the problem. It seems we need to keep reminding ourselves that the dominant culture is organized to wear us out. That's how it works. It's part of the reason why even um, lifespan started to decrease, you know, Medicine stretched it out for us a little bit. We have these extraordinary interventions. Even though the biggest thing to cre create longer lifespans was unions, really. You know, basic hygiene we've had for a while. And it's really 
that unions came in and gave us, instead of working six or seven days a week, five days a week, and just 40 hours instead of a lot more hours than that. And when you can rest enough, you can recover from a lot of things, and you can live a lot longer. And we, of course, we used to have stronger communities. There's all sorts of things, but we're getting worn out again. And even the trauma medicine is not enough. And we see this. Even elite members of our human family show signs of how the culture works on us. We have high-profile athletes, big, very healthy, strong bodies and minds, and celebrities and business people and politicians. We see these people with mental health issues of, of all kinds. We see some of them get involved in scandalous behavior, even criminal and immoral behavior. And now our billionaires want to take the ultimate vacation. They want to go to space, which is not only the ultimate vacation, but it's the ultimate peak experience, too. It gives you a big hit and seems very spiritual. You know, imagine you're going into the vast expanse of silence. It really is like a little hit, a little synthetic satori, we could call it. You're not going to become enlightened, but it's, we seek any peak experience we can because we're worn out. And in order to arrive at sanity, we need to throw off the chains put on us by Captain Clock, Colonel Calendar, and Commander Capital. <laughs> the three, the triumvirate. I know, try to say that fast. I know how to alliterate. As a philosopher, it's my one literary skill, which is, it's you. It's too much, and it's not enough. Too much alliterating and not enough to make up for other sins of composition. Now, it won't help us to hide from the suffering of the world either. can acknowledge that. Uh, mindfulness teachers, this is like a little soapbox, so get, you can get out the water if you want to wash up from the soap that I'm going to kick around here. But mindfulness teachers, I think, need to stop cutting us off from the suffering of the world. Not all of them do it. Not all of them do it intentionally. But I, just speaking personally, I've had enough of hearing about how once upon a time our ancestors would encounter a saber-toothed tiger. They love to make it a saber-toothed tiger in particular. And then our ancestor there would get all kinds of stress hormones flooding their system and they'd have all this energy they need to run away from the tiger and they would escape and then they would calm down again. And the story the mindfulness people and neuroscientists love to tell us is that we get a bunch of emails and we have bills to pay and we argue with our life partner and so on and the body treats all of these things like we're being chased by a tiger because that's how these mechanisms evolve. They evolve to deal with tigers, not with emails, not with an email inbox. And the idea is that we feel like we're always being chased by tigers, when in fact it's just emails and traffic jams and we hate our job and whatever. And so therefore we should learn to calm down and let it all go. Now there's certainly some truth there, but it's fragmented. It's a dangerous wisdom in the bad sense. It's a fragment. We are not stressed merely because we are foolishly acting like there might be a tiger behind the parking meter down the block. I don't think the body's that stupid. We are stressed in part, although that can happen. I'm certainly willing to agree. There's a partial truth there. But maybe there's also, let's say, something else. We're not just stressed because we think maybe there'll be a tiger jumping out from the, the next parking meter, but we're stressed because there just aren't any tigers anywhere. There maybe are a few tigers far, far away, thousands of miles away from us, but we don't see them. And our soul feels deep love and concern for them and longs to see them. And then maybe we do see a tiger in a zoo or some Instagram picture or TikTok thing or news story about tigers. 
And the soul, again, feels deep love and concern for them because often in those images, these are beings who are now trapped in cages. They don't get to be wild. So many of our friends and relatives in the larger community of life suffer, and we naturally feel worry, fear, and anxiety for them. Something in the soul wants us to help the community of life, and the soul senses that we face a great task, a great work, a great challenge to heal the mess we made, a mess spearheaded by the dominant culture. And so the soul, and therefore the body and mind, keeps mustering up all kinds of energy for us to give us the strength to accomplish a visionary work of transformation and healing that will be good for everybody, us too, the whole community of life. But then we do nothing. The soul musters up all this energy. We have something important to do. And we check our email, or we argue with our loved ones, or we watch Netflix, or we go to meaningless jobs, and then we go on vacation to calm down, and it feels so good. We say, oh, see how good it is to be out in nature or to go to the beautiful places. And meanwhile, the soul is saying, that's not what I was talking about. Yes, this is important, but there's this other work we need to do. And so we can use our meditation practice to calm down, of course, from our busy lives. We should do that. We should learn how to relax just right where we are. It's important not to get reactive not to try and heal ourselves and the world on the basis of an anxious or worried heart, mind, and body, or an angry one or a frustrated one. And at the same time, it seems we should let our souls know that we really do care about the world. To say that to the soul, to, to sit and find out. Maybe I'm wrong. You say, well, Dr. Nico said that I'm upset about the whales dying. Sit and see if you are. When you do read the news, sit with it and see what is the soul really upset about the state of the world. Does it want me to do something? You can ask that question. And you can say to the soul, do you feel better if I assure you I really do care? I really want to do something for the transformation and healing of myself and the whole community of life. And see in yourself if that feels like it's true and in any case, it's about facing the suffering in ourselves and to see how it inevitably and thoroughly resonates with the suffering of the world. Because we're related to everything. doesn't matter what we might think. It, the world doesn't make sense if we're not related to everything. That's the world that we have. And so we're related to the suffering of the tigers and the whales and everybody else, the children in Africa and the people of Madagascar and Afghanistan. And it's upsetting. And what are we going to do? We can take a vacation or we better figure out what else we might do. And we shouldn't be stressed. That's not it. It's not the answer is, oh, well, I'm refusing to take care of myself now. No. But can we become a real traveler of life, a sojourner in this life? someone who has achieved a measure of authentic inner stillness, totally interwoven with outward illumination in a non-dualistic way so that the inner stillness becomes outer stillness and the outer illumination becomes inner illumination. And we as a journeyer, a traveler in this world, bring medicine. Not just our camera, <laughs> you know, and our Instagram stories. 
Now, unsurprisingly, all of this you might think, wow, is it really going on? But all this relates to this week's Yijing insights as well, because we have, just like last week, we have one moving line. And that one moving line has a simple guidance. Remember, our figure for this week is following. And our moving line says we are following the wrong thing. And that we need to find a place where we can join with helpful companions, real pilgrims on the journey of life. That's our guidance. To find people who really share our highest values and who also are willing to begin to admit that the soul is feeling the suffering of the world and wants to do something visionary. And again, spend time, contemplate. This is not about, I don't know your specific situation. We'd have to do a Yijing reading specifically on what your situation is. Maybe it's not a visionary quest for you. But maybe it is. Think about your highest values. Not any kind of rationalization. Not, well, everything I do is in a line. No, but really, just think about the values independently of anything. Okay, what do I really think life is about and this cosmos is about? And when you think about that long enough, then say, what things do I follow along with that seem out of alignment with those values? In what way would my highest and best self say that I'm following along with the wrong things? Next time, we'll look at the relating figure for this week's Yijing Insights, and that will give us plenty of food for thought and practice over the weekend. In the meantime, if you have questions, reflections, or your own stories of synchronicity to share, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org, We might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.